The biggest opportunity is in optimism right now, long term, because the market rewards optimism over the long run. And it's very easy to get, I think, cynical, to be cynical and be pessimistic, to be skeptical. And you know what? I think um, over the long run, the biggest opportunity right now, particularly as a millennial, is, is to be optimistic. From CMC Markets, this is The Artful Trader. And there are lots of opportunities. 100-point swing on the Dow. I use it to my advantage. Many people bought into that herd mentality at, uh, when they see an event. But I don't embrace new technology simply because it's new technology. The technology has to solve a problem. Hello and welcome to The Artful Trader. I'm Michael McCarthy, the Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets Asia Pacific. Each episode, we'll hear the highs and lows from the industry's experts and hear their journey to mastering the art of the financial markets. Today, we meet James Halliwell, a savvy trader whose $250 million profit from the medical marijuana business was more than just potluck. How hard is it to spot the next big investment opportunity? The next dot com, the next Bitcoin, the next invention. On the flip side, how do you avoid groupthink and stop yourself blindly chasing the next shiny new thing along with everyone else? It's an art form that James Halliwell has embraced with the vision and rigour of all early adopters. He was one of the first to see the potential and the pitfalls of Bitcoin. He invested early in medical marijuana, making a huge profit by backing the hardware around this emerging industry. As Chief Investment Strategist at the Lex Van Dam Trading Academy, James Halliwell has cemented himself as a master trader in markets, working across multiple asset classes with some of Europe's leading hedge funds and investment banks. With James's fresh approach and traditional expertise, we're going to learn how to weed out the bad investments from your portfolio and get an insight on how to spot the next big thing. James Halliwell is speaking to the artful trader from the City of London. James, how did you get into trading? Sure. So um, I, th- I think one of my earliest memories of basically trading or doing anything financially related was counting the coins in my piggy bank. And my sister, my younger sister also had them. I must have been, I don't know, five, six years old or something like that. And we used to tip out the piggy banks and see who had the most money. But we would get into a game where I would basically, as the older brother, manipulate her into believing that um, the bigger the coin, the greater the value so we'd be swapping like the old two pences for 20 pences and things like that. Um, and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, I, yeah, that, that was my first foray into currency trading was really taking advantage of my younger sister with, with swapping big coins for small ones. Um, I remember one of the earliest things when people are asking you, what do you want to be when you grow older? I think after the usual sort of astronaut or fireman phase, I think I was 12 or 13. I'd just seen the film Trading Places. So I, I saw that and I remember just saying to my mum at like 12, I'm going to be a stockbroker. I'm going to work in Canary Wharf in London. And I didn't really understand what they did at that point other than make money. But having seen a few films, I began to get into that. So I think from a young age, I had these, these various other ventures as well on the side. I loved working during school, during studies, had various paper rounds, number of jobs. But I also traded things like football boots or soccer cleats, as you might know them over there. Um, I'd buy them used or pre-owned on on eBay or marketplaces, do them up, flip uh, playing them or playing them for school and the school team, clean them up and then flip them on for a profit. And I always had the the smartest or the newest boots, even though I was on the bench a lot of the time. (laughs) 
uh, for the school team. But I was a guy who was just continually buying something cheap, doing it up and then reselling it high and just doing it continuously. So I think I had this this tendency in me from a young age. But in terms of then getting into my profession, into my career in later life, as I say, I think a lot of it when it comes to trading is personality based. So I don't think it's I don't think it's that strange that I found myself in this sort of environment. Um, so it was during university, I, I made the right decision, I feel, to go into that, studied economics, studied the world of finance as well, learned about the stock market. And then, yeah, once I, I got my opportunity, I got straight into Bloomberg as a graduate, great training program internationally and in London, teach you about each asset class, all the various markets, as well as how to use the Bloomberg terminal, an amazing resource. And that's where I really got into the community of trading. And I reached out um, early in my career to, uh, to Lex Van Damme. The business partner of mine now, who uh, you know I've known for a number of years, has basically been a mentor to me throughout my career. Um, he's a phenomenal investor, phenomenal, well-regarded trader as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a phenomenal learning experience. Well, James, it's been quite a journey. Um, but as as we do with all of the traders we speak to, I'd like to go uh, back a little here. Um, what are the basics you'd advise traders who are just starting out? So we, we teach a number of things at the academy of ours, um, at the Lex Van Damme Training Academy, where we basically teach and train through our coaching programs, people who are just starting out and also those who are a bit more experienced in the world of trading. But in terms of the specifics, I think much of trading is based around your psychology and your temperament. So a lot of it is personality based. And, and those sorts of things can be they can be molded and mentored, but they can't really be taught. So you do have to have the right sort of personality and mindset um, in order to stand a chance of succeeding in trading. However, the good news is that whilst that's kind of innate, it can be shaped to an extent, but it's, it's kind of innate um, to begin with, you don't have to have specific experience or expertise in, say, mathematics or science or anything like that. I, I didn't come from that sort of background myself. And many of the best traders of a history, we look at the likes of Paul Tudor Jones or Richard Dennis with the Turtle Traders, um, another experiment which we which actually inspired the Million Dollar Traders TV series that Lex produced on the BBC. You look at these things and you could teach people the same rules, but get very different outcomes on the basis of personality and ultimately the, the temperament of people. So you need to absolutely have a process and to have rules. And that's what we, we aim to deliver at the academy. That's what we teach. Um, but a lot of it will come down to your temperament and to your, your motivation ultimately for trading and, and why you're in it. If you're in it just to make money, you might make a lot of money quickly. But the reality is that you're unlikely to stick with it for the long term and see through the inevitable setbacks that you'll uh, that you'll encounter and you could well you know blow up your account in the process which of course is 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 the number one thing to avoid doing so when you're starting out patience as well is is probably the key ingredient and perseverance it's like anything any anybody who's really successful regardless of what they do if it's a sportsman an athlete whatever it takes time it takes experience it requires patience and it requires dedication and discipline you can't just come into this and and be a, an overnight superstar and if you are you'll probably be at the bottom of the pile uh, the, the day after. There's no magic bullet, but um, a lot of it is, is process and discipline based. It would apply to any industry, any pursuit. Yeah, I, I echo that. One of the key things we look for in any potential young traders is determination. Yeah, exactly. You must have that as key. Now, James, as you know, when traders get together, they love to swap war stories. So I'd like to ask you, what was your best or most memorable trade? 
Uh, BP, after the Macondo oil disaster, which obviously on a human and environmental level was uh, was was terrible, um, but it was quite early into my career, and I remember taking a, a significant personal position in in that stock um, in the aftermath, and I think that validated what I was beginning to understand about how psychologically or emotionally driven the market is and how just like in life, um, to be philosophical for a moment, um, which it often doesn't pay to be in trading, um, things are, are rarely as bad as you think they're going to be and they rarely work out as good as you think they're going to be. So often after you know something terrible has happened, the price has reacted already, it's reacted uh, a lot, it's probably overshot. So when, when things are all over the front pages and on the 10 o'clock news in the UK, the 10 o'clock news, by the time it's hit the headlines there, it's often time to do the opposite. Or it's often an indication that the worst is over or the best is over if it's positive news. Um, and it's time to start thinking about doing the opposite. So definitely the BP recovery, because it was early on in, in my career, sticks out as one of the most memorable ones. There's, I've made quicker money and faster money, but for me, that's not satisfying because it's often, I think you've got to have humility and you've got to understand that you cannot control the market. Um, it doesn't care or doesn't know whether you've got a position or it doesn't care, certainly. So yeah, if you make quick money, it was just lucky. Um, equally, if you lose money fast and you did the, you, you follow the right process, that was just unlucky. You just got to cut, cut the trade and move on. Well, I'm sorry, James, but we don't let anyone off the hook here. <laughs> Your most painful trade? Oh, uh, this is the usual deep inhale that everybody does when they're asked this question. They think there are so many to choose from. Feel free to suck your teeth. Um, there are a few recently. I mean, it could be as recent as this month. Um, not not uh, terrible trades, but just where you perhaps momentarily lacked discipline or you've been impulsive, more impulsive than you would usually. Um, but there were a couple recently which I've chased, and just to my frustration, Fever Tree, a tonic water manufacturer in, in, in the UK, um, that was a very frustrating one. Phenomenal results. Gucci as well. So Kering, which owns the Gucci brand, uh, again reported uh, about two or three weeks ago. Really didn't go so well. Uh, gapped up. Great, great results. But the market still, having gapped up, sold off. I lacked uh, patience. I was emotionally attached to those positions, I think, to those companies. That's another danger in trading. Um, I tend to say, well, it's basically, it will catch you out. The market is so clever and so sophisticated. If you make a mistake, it will punish you. So yeah, you, you, with experience, you begin to notice these patterns and, and hopefully prevent yourself making a mistake ahead of time. Um, but yeah, there are tons of them. And, and, and anybody who claims that they, had, they don't have losses or they haven't had bad experiences is, uh, is, is not showing you the full picture, uh, to put it politely. I'd, ab I'd absolutely echo that. I've never met a successful, honest trader who doesn't own up to having taken losses. It's part of trading. But it is an important part, and how you handle them is important. We've all made the mistake of falling in love with positions. What does it feel like when the market punishes your love? It reminds you how foolish you are and how correct the market is. The market is never <laughs> wrong. The market is never wrong, and I am often wrong. Um, but the ability and the skill in my career is to react quickly when I'm wrong. So first of all, be able to recognize it. And as soon as I've recognized it, be quick to act. So not suffer sort of paralysis um, in front of the screen, rabbit in the headlights kind of thing. Uh, but it's to react. It, it's not the, the most dangerous thing you can do is be in denial um, when you have a position on that's going against you um, because you've recognized that you're wrong or you think you're wrong. So you've recognized it. 
but you failed to act. And particularly if, you, if you're running a loss already, and it's probably a big loss if you haven't stopped yourself out as well, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's how accounts are blown up. Um, you, you've always got to have that humility because the market is never wrong and it's got a paddle big enough to, uh, to crack any of us on the backside. Say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. More from James Halliwell in a moment. This is The Artful Trader, uncovering the highs and the lows to mastering the art of the financial markets. In our first series, we met Raoul Powell. He's one of the most successful global macro traders ever. So make sure you catch series one of The Artful Trader as we go around the world in 80 trades. Raoul describes why macro is so thrilling. It is like the world's most beautiful puzzle that never gets solved, and the history of economies is cyclical. Patterns repeat and things repeat. And people basically follow the same behavior patterns time and time and time again. So if you understand the past, you have a better understanding of the future. You can hear all of our interviews at theartfultraderpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now back to my chat with James Helliwell in the city of London. James, speaking of good trades, when did you first recognize the global economic potential of medical marijuana? I'd heard about the industry potential in 1415, along with many other things like cryptocurrencies and which is you know, blockchain technologies, which is a very interesting space as well. Um, but yeah, it was basically 2016, very early 2016. And you took an interesting approach. I mean, you looked at the changing landscape, you identified some key factors, for example, the number of licenses issued in a particular uh, area. Uh, and then you ended up with an investment opportunity in the hardware that actually smokes the marijuana. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's a really interesting thing. So we approached it, first of all, from the hardware side of things. So as a consumer product company, essentially not involved in the production uh, or cultivation of, of the crop in, in any of its forms. Um, so we began to get an understanding of user preferences. And I think most importantly from that, how attitudes and adoption how attitudes were changing um, in terms of tolerance or acceptance of cannabis for recreational purposes and also for, for medical usage. So we looked at it from that standpoint and began to get a feel for um, the potential size of the industry, which, according to some research which was uh, produced by Cohen and Co. at the time, they reckon that it could become like a 50 billion industry by 2026. So in like eight years, it could go from, I think, currently for vaporizers, it's about four, about four billion or so. It could basically go up tenfold, more than tenfold in like the next eight years. That's a huge number. We then looked at what was going on around the world in terms of the political landscape, which is, of course, the most important thing in regulations. Um, when we mentioned attitudes were changing, it's all well and good consumer attitudes changing. But uh, if they're still not allowed to buy it legally, then it's, it's a non-starter. From the perspective of the, the vaporizer manufacturer, I think the focus there is on medical application more than recreational. But when you begin to look at the uh, scope for recreational usage, it's, it's also huge. Um, but the, the most important driver of this is certainly uh, regulations. So it's, it's uh, politics, which we are seeing shifts around the world. The UK, wine-based, a notable example uh, in June, where there was a, a young uh, child who had come over from um, the US, where it sourced on the West Coast some, uh, some CBD, so cannabinoid oil, um, to help with his, uh, his seizures, which he was getting. Um, he basically had eight weeks' supply of the medication, but that was seized initially by the UK customs or by the, the um, guys at imports. But that, that was overruled like a week later when the parents appealed and he went to Parliament and uh, the Home Secretary, Sajid Javed, 
overruled it and, and granted him access to this medication, which I think on a human level is absolutely the right thing to do. But there are more and more cases of this now, particularly in the UK government, but around the world, where things are becoming more relaxed, um, particularly on the, the medical side. But what's holding that back is really the lack of research that's gone on uh, in that space. So for, in order for clinicians or, or uh, doctors basically to prescribe this stuff, they need to be educated as much as anything. Um, but they also need to have access to, to research into clinical trials. And until cannabis is basically descheduled, it's unlikely in the US, for example, as a leading nation of this, it's unlikely that there's going to be access or there's going to be that research produced, which enables the, the medical industry to, uh, to begin prescribing it more freely. So there the, the needs to be shifts in red tape in order to really open up this market. James, can you tell us a little more about your strategy uh, in which you looked at the US states that issued only limited licenses to grow marijuana for recreational use? Why did you start looking there? So in the likes of Colorado in the US, there were something like 1,400 producers or licensed uh, growers for a, a population of, I think, 5 million or something like that. This is for recreational use, not medical use. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So they're, they're, it's just basically saturated. Every man and his dog has, uh, has started growing cannabis in Colorado to, to try and sell. So there's an oversupply there. But the difference is in some of these limited license states, uh, including likes of New York and Florida, so you know, major, major uh, states in the US, a limited license basically means that only, say, a handful of, of these licenses will be issued, say, four or five or something for a state. Some of these licenses training for like $40 million or something each before the company is even its pre-revenue, before it's even started doing business or growing. That's how in demand they are, how valuable they are as assets. And that's why you should be looking at these companies that hold them, in my opinion. Um, but in a limited license state, there might be only 1 million people for every one licensed operator, rather than 1,400 licenses per 5 million population. So clearly when, um, when these licenses are granted and when these states become federally legal, then those guys have got basically an oligopoly or something of a, a monopoly uh, in terms of production and supply in those states. Um, and that's going to be really, really valuable to those companies. So you need to look at companies, I think, with these limited licenses. There's one case which we're working on at the moment, which we can't disclose because it's a private company that we're looking at, which basically has 10 out of its 12 licenses are in these major limited license states. Um, but I'll be looking for similar companies um, that have these because when this opens, the, when the floodgates open, well, it's going to be like the end of prohibition. And that's the so-called green rush, uh, which is taking place, you know, named after the old gold rush of mining all those years ago. The most important thing is to look for those licenses, but also avoid where, avoid the so-called commoditization of, of, of growing. When prohibition ended in, I think it was 1933 in the US, buying like a hop producer to make alcohol or beer just was not the right move. You weren't going to get rich doing that. It was about trying to invest in the distribution and, and the brands which control the distribution around the world, not, not just the people who are basically producing the commodities. And that's the reason why we were looking at the hardware element initially and, and not being involved in, in sort of growing the, uh, the, the flower. Well, you've clearly put a lot of work into it and you're highly motivated. What is it that makes it work for you? Is it the thrill of the chase or finding something new? Yeah, it certainly is. That's what keeps you fresh, I think, is always learning something new and, and, and facing new challenges. So um, it was a completely new industry. I was... Um, I wouldn't say out of my depth approaching it, but I, I think we all have these human 
uh, fears where you think, God, I know nothing about this industry really. And uh, particularly when it's something which is a bit more abstract. And let's be honest, it has something of a taboo still attached to it, although those attitudes are changing. Um, when I go home and tell my friends or family, whatever, that, uh, or, or people on, on, on most uh, interviews, apart from this wonderful broadcast, that, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm working with a company which is uh, involved in, in weed. They're like, they think, what, some like stoners or something like that? Or <laughs> there's all these connotations which are conjured up. But when you, when you find yourself outside of your comfort zone, you learn something, it becomes fascinating and these opportunities open up to you. I'm now a shareholder in that company and um, it's a project which I think I'll be really involved in for the next 10 years or so. Um, and looking around elsewhere in the space, there are a ton of other opportunities which anybody can be looking at. Well, what would you recommend for our listeners who are interested in investing in this area? Okay, what I'd recommend is, first of all, avoiding the many mistakes that you can make trying to invest in this sector and then work back from there. So I can tell you what not to do. What you shouldn't do is just go on and buy any stock listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, any of those hot pot stocks that have gone up a lot or have shown a big spike, but you know nothing about. That's the first thing. So a lot of these names are very, very volatile because they're highly speculative. Highly speculative is basically a professional term for meaning that there's no real fundamentals or quality management behind the company. So it's just a raffle ticket or a lottery ticket. So that's the first thing. You don't just go buying anything willy-nilly, thinking um, that just because it's in a hot sector, you're basically guaranteed to make money buying it. So where would I look? Well, first of all, um, I refer back to looking at, for example, companies which hold limited licenses. That's really important. I think that's key. That is a, an operational advantage and a durable moat, if you want to quote Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, that they have that, uh, that advantage as a, an asset, basically an intangible asset over other businesses. It's a scarce commodity. But you also need to be aware of valuation. So even if you find some quality companies, even if you're looking at the larger, more established ones, but you look at the valuations, there's still an awful lot of optimism baked into that price. Um, so regardless of which stock you're picking, just by investing in that sector, valuations are extremely high. Um, and most of these companies are highly speculative. Um, and, and then within that, many of them have unproven businesses and often less than stellar management or inexperienced management teams. So there are a lot of ways to go wrong. I think... <laughs> In many other industries that you might be investing in, the easiest thing for somebody to do, which I think is still effective, is to look at buying a sector ETF. So an exchange traded fund which tracks a basket of the stocks. So whilst it's kind of counterintuitive to my point uh, where I said you need to be selective, and that as professionals is what we're paid to do, to be selective rather than just buy a, a sector or an index, I think as, a, as an individual if you realize that it's just too complicated, then at least with an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, whilst it is investing in a basket of these companies, it at least spreads your risk across them without incurring lots of dealing charges for owning 10, 20 businesses, um, which might be listed on different exchanges and, and, and all the rest. It's just basically an easier way to gain exposure to the theme, to the industry. And a lot of these exchange-traded funds like the indices will be capitalized and cap-weighted or capitalization-weighted meaning that the larger companies, um, so the more established ones typically, um, have a larger weighting in that ETF. So again, you spread your risk, but it's more concentrated amongst the more established firms. Um, ETFs are a good way of diversifying 
if you're not confident in picking um, which, which stocks are likely to uh, to succeed. And in this case, I think it's more about survival rather than which, which stocks are going to make more money. It, it's more a case of avoiding the ones which are likely to go bankrupt. Or if you're really, really into the sector and you have some expertise, look at um, if you're going to pick single stocks, look at the leading or established names, but have a very, very long, be honest with yourself and have a long holding period because there's significant volatility, which you're going to have to withstand in order to hopefully realize the, the potential of the industry. So never trade with more money than you can afford to lose. That's rule number one, regardless of what you're doing, and particularly here where it's a highly speculative position. Okay. Well, marijuana and, and blockchain-based blockchain currencies operate in legally grey areas, and there are re- potentially regulatory challenges. What were you advising your investors early on with, with cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so they, this was a really uh, another really interesting one, and I had followed um, the industry for probably two or three years very closely. Um, it was very clear that speculation had reached mania, the stage of mania, um, and, and it was never going to last. Um, but a lot of money had been made, and then a lot of money was lost in the meantime, so hopefully people enjoyed the ride. But what I was advising around that time was basically, and, and this is on the basis of what I was doing myself in my personal trading, was that, look, you need to be looking at the underlying technology, so the blockchain, as a long-term investment theme. These cryptocurrencies are just hype, which has been picked up in the media in the short term. That's like a veneer. It's not really the underlying proposition. It's just one of the things that can be done with blockchain. But that's what the public or what appealed to the public and what drew people in. So I advised people to, okay, not not be dour like most people say well say oh it's a bubble it's a bubble avoid it avoid it you can make a lot of money in a bubble but you need to know where you're going to get out and again coming down to experience it's often very difficult to stick to your guns and actually get out on time because everybody thinks i'll be the first guy to get out i'll be fine i'm gonna buy it yeah i'll be the first to get out i'll be the smart one you're never the smart one or the smartest one. You're often the dumb one when you think that. So it was, look, if you're going to be involved in it, as many people were, make the most of it, but know that it will not last forever. This will not last forever in cryptocurrencies. As soon as you get that first hint or that first worry, that gut feel that it's, it might be over, get out straight away and, and don't return to it until the dust has settled. So I was advising, look, participate, but for sure, this isn't the real investment case. Blockchain beneath it is what will last, and this is just temporary. So make your money, take profits, and don't stay too long, which is easier said than done. Well, you, you're echoing something that I think I first heard in 99 as the uh, tech boom was taking off, and, and a very senior stockbroker said to me, sure, the fools are dancing, but the even bigger fools are sitting on the sidelines. <laughs> so true. <laughs> it's so true. But... But what is it that makes you so sure the cryptocurrencies aren't going to survive? Um, there are a number of reasons for it. I think, first of all, the validation. So as a proof of concept, I believe that um, cryptocurrency, as, as we refer to it, or as it's commonly known, has been validated as a proof of concept. As a digital currency, I do believe that the world is moving towards digitization anyway of currencies, of the fiat monetary system. Um, do I believe in decentralization? I think it's a nice idea, but cryptocurrency is predicated on that. It's never going to happen. For as long as governments are in control, which will be forever, um, that's never going to happen. They're never going to allow that. 
what they'll do, and I think we've seen, they would look to implement in the future a digital currency, but it would be a digital currency of their own. It would be the digital euro, digital pound, digital Aussie dollar, um, or, or a global digital currency. I don't think any it will ever be decentralized. And that was basically the whole premise of, of uh, cryptocurrencies, the, the investment rationale behind them before everybody just got caught up in the mania, greed, basically, the bull market of making money, making money, making money, easy money. It's been fun. It's been a great proof of concept. I'm not uh, against cryptocurrencies. You know, I, I support the idea, but the reality is very different, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's over. As we know them anyway, or as, as the public know them, cryptocurrencies are over. Yeah. Now, James, as a British resident, you know, I have to ask you a question, a question, at least one question, about the ongoing challenges and opportunities that Brexit offers. Has, has it changed your trading or will it change your trading in the future? Yeah, it has done. So first of all, um, Brexit created a number of opportunities um, and it was the most profitable period in memory, uh, in recent memory, uh, around June time in July, following the referendum on the 23rd, I think it was, of, of June 2016. So the process is obviously ongoing. It's created a number of opportunities along the way because simply it's created volatility. Stuff has moved about a lot, as you can see, or as, as is evident in the currency in sterling. It's created a lot of inflation as well uh, with the devaluation of the currency. So that's now creating opportunities in sectors where margins may be under greater pressure. So you're looking at single stocks. So there are opportunities there. I think what's clear is that nothing is clear. So what's clear is that there is uncertainty still. And the, the, the narrative changes from day to day here. So really, you've just got to take things with a pinch of salt. But more broadly, for as I say, returning to the initial point around what's the outlook for the industry, from a regulatory perspective, the UK separating from the EU is particularly pertinent for the, the financial and investment management industry. Um, so that's something which we're trying to figure out as the narrative changes each day, how those things are structured so we can carry out business. For what it's worth, I don't know whether I should mention it on this interview, but I'll just be upfront. Um, I did uh, vote leave. Uh, for the referendum. And I think in, in hindsight, I do feel as though I was duped uh, to an extent as we saw the fallout of the, um, of, of the campaign thereafter. I had my, my personal reasons for, for making that decision as well. But economically, um, whilst it will benefit areas of the economy, I believe very strongly, it will also, I think, crimp growth. And that's what we're seeing now. But the worst thing for markets, regardless of which side of the fence you're on or which decision you make, Investors hate uncertainty. If you, you can plan for a bad outcome, you can plan for or position for a good outcome, but you, you cannot do anything with uncertainty. Are you expecting further volatility uh, or bouts of volatility? Yeah, yeah. I expect a continuation of what we've seen because there's, there's still no resolution. There's no clear path. So I expect that will, uh, there will be a continuation. I have no... I have no real confidence in uh, in the UK government, the UK Parliament, and the EU really sorting this out in time. Um, so I think it will be quite a disorderly uh, disorderly exit in March 2019, which isn't that far away now. Um, so yeah, not not to be too gloomy. Um, thing, things will change. Volatility creates opportunity, of course. Um, not too uh, not too hopeful for the process. At least. Well, thank you for your thoughts on Brexit. It's interesting to hear what the man on the ground or the trader on the ground has to say. So. James, what are you looking at next? Where's the next big opportunity? So first of all, medical marijuana is huge, and, and, and that for me is number one. Um, but behind that, I think closely blockchain. Perhaps in scale, it could be even greater. It could be as significant as 
the internet basically in terms of how it, it, it changes industries and how we how we operate i think with blockchain it will be its application in particular areas such as healthcare so biotechnology for example that's where the most i think inspiring opportunity and potential is Th- those are the areas that i'm focusing on and also i think finally the biggest opportunity is in optimism right now long term because the market rewards optimism over the long run and it's very easy to get i think cynical to be cynical and be pessimistic to be skeptical and you know what i think um over the long run the biggest opportunity right now particularly as a millennial is is to be optimistic because everybody's written off millennials as a, as as consumers etc but i see so many opportunities they're about to go into home formation start families mortgages, all, all the rest, all the usual stuff that normally would have been done five or 10 years ago. So yeah, I would just say, be optimistic, be hopeful. There's not a lot of people who are invested in that. So that for me is also a big opportunity is to just be optimistic and to go after it, to learn, to throw yourself into opportunities like this and to enjoy the ride. Well, James, I see our time is coming to an end. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to be at this end, James. Many thanks to you uh, for all those insights. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I'd love to do this again sometime. And yeah, it's been my pleasure to be with you. That was James Helliwell. We'll put a link to his website in our show notes. For previous episodes of The Artful Trader and for more information about CMC Markets, head to our website, theartfultraderpodcast.com where you can also access some limited time offers. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe free in your favourite podcast app. The Artful Trader is an original podcast series by CMC Markets, a global leader in online trading. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not speak to your personal financial situation. I'm Michael McCarthy. Thanks for listening. This is The Artful Trader.